And welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm a comic book writer. I'm the creator of Afterlife Inc. and one-fourth of Big Punch Studios. And my name's PJ, and if you don't know me by now, you will never, ever, ever know me. Ooh. <laughs> oh my god, you wrote that? I mean, it's our fifth episode, come on. <laughs> Who's yeah. going to tune in for part four of a story? Oh yeah, and not have listened to the other three. Oh or... yeah, no, I think I think um, I, I thought you were taking the uh, the opposite kind of tack with it. We were like, it's episode five. No one's listening at this point. <laughs> like <laughs> everyone's already given up and gone home. I'm just trying to get that simply red demographic in, John. <laughs> but PJ, when you're not um, writing um, smooth kind of, I don't know. Jazz, middle of the road jazz pop <laughs> mid-90s fusions uh what, what else do you do oh i write comics yeah, there, we go. there we go there we go um are they well read or just simply read question mark <laughs> <laughs> oh god the episode's gone off the rails early <laughs> Sorry, and it's all no. my fault <laughs> no it's it's um quarter past 11 on a dreary saturday and i swear i'm only drinking water there is nothing stronger in this glass um but PJ, here we are. We we um this feels like a weird little milestone in a way. The the end of our first arc. It really does. Um especially given what we know we're gonna be doing next. It's it's that weird it's a weird moment for a number of reasons in terms of the story that we're looking at, the jet that's run on JLA. Um and for us just managing to hit the end of a storyline that I've had immense fun revisiting. Well, yeah, no, it, it, amazing. I, it has it has been amazing, and um, I kind of, I mean, as I think we've mentioned many times, like you know, I've read I've read these this particular story like so many times, and it has been surprising to actually be able to discover new things going back for this what what must be the fiftieth time or something like that. Yeah, completely. But I think I think one of the weird thing is one of the weird things about this, many weird things about this, but one of the weirdest weirdest is we're we, you know we've we've been doing it as series should probably do this is a good sorry words are failing me um we've been skying at the beginning and working in a very orderly fashion up to issue four uh and i know that after this issue things get a bit weird because we're gonna jump into all the weird uh scandalone or associated or side stories which were happening at the same time and we've done our best to try and chronologically fit them into a central canon if that makes sense yeah there are two we'll be covering um 
that one of which was released and is set before what we've done. The other one was released after and is set before. <laughs> um, but it made more sense to start with the first four issues of of JLA. If you're doing a podcast about Grant Morrison's JLA, you want to start with the first four issues of Grant Morrison's JLA. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and and you, dear dear listener, should should thank us really because we we've been like uh, the canary down the mine of um, uncertainty here. Um, you know, we, we, we both know, of course, that Midsummer's Nightmare is set before, but... And was released before. And was released before, but is not written by Grant Morrison. But then we've got, like, JLA Wildcats, which it, that it did require a bit of guesswork as to where that, that fitted. But there's a little clue in Volume 2 of the main series, which we will cover in time, where I'm like, ah, you know, the great detective here. I'm like, oh, so it must come before because that item wouldn't be there if it hadn't come from X. So, yeah, like I, you know, here's me like, you know, just for numbers, that that gif where all the formulas are kind of flying towards me. And I'm like, I've done it. I think this is it. We've cracked, we've cracked the riddle. And then there's uh, Secret Files and Origins 1, which I, I think we'll only be covering the one story from, the main story at the front of the issue, mm. because that's Morrison and Porter. But that was released a few months after the issue we're covering today, but is set between Midsummer's Nightmare and New World Order. That's going to be quite exciting for me because I have some of the weirder stuff we're about to go into, I am the least familiar with. And that's going to be quite interesting for me to kind of like discover like a new facet of what's going on here. Well, me too. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with Midsummer Nightmare and New and uh, Secret Origins, but I have never read the Wildcats crossover. So I am looking forward to delving into that. And then, of course, sorry, just, I, I, just like these little like light bulbs are going off in my head and I'm thinking like, oh, and then we've got that to look forward to and that to look forward to. But of course, we've got um, JLA 1 million to fit in as oh, well. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, indeed. Yes. And I think I've made a stab as to where that that fits in the series because again certain things are referenced but we'll cross that bridge when we when we get to it um it's like i remember i remember finding jla 1 million in the traveling man store in york i think about eight years ago and i remember it was like gold dust like i saw it on the shelf i was like oh my god i can't believe it (laughs) i can't believe i found the one copy in circulation (laughs) and now it's mine um so yeah, I think um yeah, I think we we are doing future generations a service by kind of turning this into some sensible path through through the wonder and madness that is this series. I I I completely agree. Uh, but I think for the moment we should concentrate on where we are now. You're right, sorry. No, you're so right, PJ. We need we need to focus on the moment. And that Sh- moment. Should we uh, should we start with the front cover this time? Okay, yes. Yes, indeed. I'm going to I'm going to flick through my Yeah, cuz uh, it's at the back of the book. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to flick through my uh collected edition here. Uh yes, um now this one is the cover to issue 4 is actually used on the back of my trade paperback. Oh, okay. Not mine. No, no, not yours. I think we we've talked now. We we'll we'll refrain from going into too much detail about this, but we we have both rather Nerdily, it has to be said, compared our varying uh, collect, uh, trade paperbacks from different points in time and the uh, the weird little designs that have been done on them. Um, was there anything you wanted to say, PJ? Just that 
there's not much to talk about with this cover other than that it's it's a it's a cool hero shot of the JLA. But it it, it does they look great. And I, the fact that uh, Wonder Woman is towing Aquaman. Yes, um that's a weird thing in the JLA where more often than not a character can fly. Uh and to the point where I I I've lost count of how many times in my reading career I have seen a picture of all the JLA just kind of floating in midair, and say, Batman standing on a green, uh, a green plasma platform, or something like that, or just hanging out of someone's arm, um, or swinging on a bat rope as or, he is here, or swinging on a bat rope. Yeah, it is kind of like, I mean, you are kind of left feeling a little sorry for Aquaman, like <laughs> yeah. just a tiny bit sorry for Aquaman because you kind of you could be forgiven for forgetting that the flash can't fly just because he's so powerful anyway um batman has people for that sort of thing like he has you know he has planes and jets and fancy vehicles um aquaman can't call on a sky whale to help him more is the pity more i would is- love to see a sky whale show up in jla I would love to see. I mean, like his his wonderful arm, you know, which comes with all manner of tricks and detachable, you know, variant action figure plug in parts. I'm amazed. I'm amazed he doesn't have like a hot air balloon attachment or a uh, <laughs> a propeller. Yeah, just a single propeller, you know. But uh, yeah, you just you know, rather practically, the JLA are racing along a corridor towards us, and one uh, as you say, a Wonder Woman is just kind of towing Aquaman through the air at the end of her lasso it does i do quite like that you've got superman wonder woman martian manhunter green lantern can all fly but it's batman who's at the top of the page yeah uh, we're, we're you know because again as we, as we as we said comics are an art based on frozen moments in time yes and you know that the very next millisecond everyone in that panel will overtake batman just leave him behind. Just leave him behind. Even Aquaman, who is being towed at, as we learnt, I think, an episode ago, uh, at Mach, Mach 3, which is Wonder Woman's kind of top speed, apparently. She might not be going top speed here. That's true. Maybe just Mach 1. Yeah. Yeah. So Batman is only deafened by the sonic <laughs> boom. This is the thing. This is the thing I kind of... This is the inherent insanity of a lot of dc superheroes and 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 what makes them amazing like i kind of feel as a massive generalization in the marvel universe characters can be super strong but there is like a slight grounding to it it's like it's like they're not quite as powerful on the whole and then like with the jla characters it's like when you have all all of these beings who can i don't know fuse coal into diamonds beneath their beneath their fingers or can move so fast that like the air would vaporize around them it's like i would be terrified of being near them like you know the self-control like superman needs to not just like sit down a little too fast and just create an earthquake i mean that's terrifying it's it's something that I, I I seem to recall um, 
gets covered in the JLA Avengers crossover that Kurt oh, Busiek and George Perez did. That's where my mind went as well. <laughs> which is an amazing book. I love that. It's probably my favourite DC Marvel crossover of all time. Hey, I think it's hey, amazing. Hey now, hey now, are you saying it's better than Marvel versus DC? Yes. Hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Marvel versus DC is fun. Don't yes. get me wrong, but it's it's silly. JLA Avengers is a well-written big story written by a guy who has encyclopedic knowledge of oh. both universes continuity and just plays around with it in such interesting amazing ways oh my god yeah like the king of um continuity it is it is astonishing yeah now we could probably do a bonus episode about jla avengers that is uh, i love bonus that episodes okay we'll, we'll add back to the list yeah well, should we uh, should we get into uh, the episode itself, uh, PJ? I, I apologise. I've been, uh, I think, the architect of this uh, diversion, but uh, <laughs> we should probably get onto the uh, the main event. Let's do it. So, um, when we left off, if we just remind our readers, readers, <laughs> listeners, uh, I don't know what medium we're in. Uh, yeah, no, listeners, no, our our our, um, our, our friends, our fans, no, our friends, friends are better. <laughs> our our betters. Um, when when we last left our, our Justice League heroes, we uh, we had most of them being held captive by the Hyper Clan. Uh, Superman was strapped to a chair while some Kryptonite hovered near him, and the rest of the League were in a device I believe called the Flower of Wrath. Indeed, indeed, or the Which Flower the Flower of Wrath, if you so if you so prefer. Meanwhile, <laughs> Batman had discovered that the Hyper Clan were actually Martians and had used this to his advantage and defeated a mortal. He had then surrounded three more members of the Hyper Clan with fire and was about to, let's be honest, beat them up. Now, PJ, um, what were their names? Zenturian. Yes. And the other two. Uh, it was your friend and mine, the big rocky dude, the shapeshifter. Uh, yeah, him. Fluxus and Tronics. You know what? I'm going to... Spoiler here. Their names don't come up again in this issue, so I don't care. Uh, PJ, they, they never come up again in continuity, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. So ba I can forget them now. Batman punched them out of continuity. <laughs> uh, but yeah, sorry. No, th things were looking bleak. and uh, Unless you're Batman. Unless you're Batman. And even as Batman started, as you say, beating the you know ever-loving crap out of these uh, these. Three Martians, who he had incapacitated with a little box of matches and, uh, and some gasoline. God, that was uh, brilliant. Which was incredible. Um, uh, the Hyper Clan summon their armies down out of orbit and begin to close this horrible torture device called the Flower of Wrath. Oh yeah, they are about to invade the Earth as well. That's um, that's a thing. A small but subtle... <laughs> yeah, a small but significant <laughs> detail which we need to draw attention to is... Yes, the planet is about to be invaded by se more than 70 beings that each kind of have, like, Superman's powers and more. That's a problem. It's, it's a big problem, not going to lie. You know, um, I do kind of wish poor Metamorpho hadn't um, been compromised because I think the world really needs a, uh, a Z-list hero. Come, no, come on. We did establish Metamorpho D-list. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. The, the, the D -list. Those other losers, total Z-listers, but Metamorpho. <laughs> Don't worry. Nuclon will save the day. <laughs> will he? Yeah, he might. Has he ever done that? He might. Um, he might, maybe. Uh, let's, let's find out. Maybe he will. Um, 
so yeah, so we we pick up pretty much exactly where we were, and we are inside Superman's head. We are privy to his thoughts. It's it's weird. We're privy to his thoughts, but we also get some caption boxes telling us what he's what he's feeling, what he's hearing and thinking. As well. at the same time, it's it's an odd little construct that Morrison's done, but one that actually I think I think works really well. Yeah, because I think it actually adds to the chaos of it as well. Like the idea that Superman is supposedly dying of of kryptonite poisoning, and because of his super senses, he's hearing cries for help coming in from around the planet like i hadn't even kind of noticed i think on any previous read through that we have this sound effect of zz zz which i assume is like a kind of um siren like a kind of between the panels so yeah i think that's supposed to represent what superman is hearing so i guess it's like this cacophony of noise and i guess also dying you know which isn't fun uh and, and Superman is just kind of like in the center of all of this, trying to gather his thoughts. But I think what this page does very well, and we'll get into detail on it in a second, is show that Superman isn't just about the powers. He's also, there's a reason he's the leader of the Justice League, and it's not because he's the most powerful member, it's because he also has that mind that works so well. And just because he's not Batman <laughs> doesn't mean he can't reason things through put them together and and basically figure stuff out for himself and yeah and i've got to say i really like that because you know it's so easy to particularly when you're comparing superman and batman to say like oh you know superman's just a big you know stupid strong guy and batman's for brains but yeah it's like he's intelligent i'd say he's more than just a strong guy in a in a cape like he's yeah he's he's thinking it out he's reasoning it it's very nice so yeah, you, you do get some the moments here. Basically, you get while the panel's explaining he's he can hear the alarms and the cries for help. His process is going, why hasn't the kryptonite killed me? Then thinking through, hang on, superheroes with fire-based powers got sick before the Hyperclan arrived. And then puts it all together, and you just get this lovely little panel where the caption says, airwaves jammed with cries for help. They need him. They need the Justice League. And in a small voice bubble, Superman just says... Martians, which is interesting because, of course, it's it, it's interesting that in the course of this arc, we've had that revelation twice. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like normally, like I think one character would discover it and then tell everyone else, and everyone would go like, "Oh my god, you're so clever." It's interesting that both Batman and Superman work it out independently, and it's interesting that we actually see them doing it both times. Like, there's a moment where both characters actually explain, whether out loud or in their head, their train of thought. And it's just interesting how... I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's interesting that Batman got there maybe like a few beats ahead of Superman. Yeah. But Superman was right behind him in terms of working it out. Yeah. And... It's just... It's great that that Superman can do that. And then I love the end of the page where you start closing in on getting a close-up of Superman's face and his eyes start glowing red as he realises maybe the kryptonite is just... It's a psychic suggestion. Maybe it's not really there. Yeah, because, of course, like, he's he's been pretty delirious for, like, the last issue. Like, you know, as if he has, well, poisoning. Like, he is kind of meant to be dying. Um, but it's interesting just the way his mind works because then he goes, well, hang on a minute. Kryptonite, obviously, whew, 
not a big fan of that. It, you know, it kind of stings. But he's like, but haven't I technically been dying for like three hours or something like that? Like, why, why haven't I died yet? It's like he's just but able also, to. He he hits that point where it weakens him, and yet suddenly he's he realizes he can hear things for that he shouldn't be able to hear if he was that weak. He can hear these alarm bells. He can hear these cries for help. And he's like, I still have my powers. Hang on. <laughs> and and of course, like most importantly, the thing that, as you as you pointed out, the thing that snaps him out of it is people are crying for help. You know, that that's the thing. It's like, hey, they kind of need you, so you need to get up. Like you need to, you know, you're not tapping out. And his eyes start burning. And as we turn the page, we get this amazing shot where simultaneously a lot of things happen in one panel. One, the fake kryptonite, which isn't even real, explodes. Superman begins to tear the chunk, the armrests off, off the chair. I hadn't noticed the armrests before. Yeah, he is, isn't he? Yeah, that's so cool. And, and he also sets fire to protect his cape with his heat vision. Another thing I hadn't noticed until just looking at it now, actually, is the smoke trail going from the, the crystal, the, the globe that the kryptonite was supposed to be in to Protex to show that it, probably very quickly he's turned his head from one to the other. So he's oh shattered this globe. Yes, you're and he's right. now looking at, yeah. I'd never, I'd never even noticed that either. Howard Porter, you sly dog. You're still surprising us after all these years. And there we also get the title, Invaders from Mars, which is a great film and you should all check it out. Written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Howard Porter, inks by John Dell, covers by Pat Garrahy, letters by Ken Lopez, separations by Heroic Age, and edited by Ruben Diaz. Yeah, I, I think um, we should probably add a disclaimer at this point that we we will we will do our best to draw attention to all everyone who works on the creative, you know, the whole creative team throughout this book. Um, we will, I guess, we should probably apologise in advance if we ever fail to mention anyone. Obviously, comics are a very collaborative effort. Um, but uh, obviously, maybe selfishly, we are focusing on Grant Morrison's kind of contribution here. But of course, he couldn't have done it without the amazing people who he worked with. So it's a huge team effort, and we applaud the team. Sorry, and that, so that's me kind of like climbing down off my high horse. Um, <laughs> can we talk about Superman's heat vision for a minute? We can. I'd always, I'd always taken Superman's heat vision to be. Exactly that. Like it is a, a like a, a laser, if you will. Uh, it's very so. You know, he can cut through things. He can now. But I, I always took it to be like kind of laser-based heat rather than fire. Like you know, he doesn't have like fire vision or whatever. So and quite often he's depicted with like beams coming out of his eyes. Like he's actually yeah. kind of like blasting lasers out of his eyes. So I've wondered here. This is something I'd always thought about, and again, probably overthinking it. Dig Superman, because he's not blasting a beam out of his eyes, and I wondered if he blasted Protex full on, would he just be? Would it be like? It wouldn't be flame damage. It would be like heat damage. So I often wondered, like, is he purposefully modulating his laser vision just a tiny bit to like now set the cape on fire? See, I've always seen it that the the red beams that you see coming out of his eyes in in a lot of comics and animated series, and I think the films as well, are they're not really there. They're just to show the heat vision, to show us what Superman is doing without actually 
but the the characters in the situation don't see those. Oh, okay. Um, it's like when in an X Men comic, Jean uses her telekinesis, and there's big pink energy bursts, but none of the characters can see those. Right. Okay. So my assumption here is that he's just looking at Protex with the heat beam set high enough to set Protex on fire, well, which is also why you've got other versions. Like I think on Smallville, the heat beam was vision was very much just blasts of heat, so it would shimmer. It was yeah. a see through shimmer effect, and then on the new live action shows it's like a white hot thing that supergirl and superman radiate from their eyes well here's a here's a question then and again martians are their one weakness is fire yeah and that has been interpreted in a lot of different ways by a lot of different creators over the years like is it like i i'd often taken it to be like it's like a proximity thing like it's yeah. it's not necessarily the heat because if a Martian stood next to a three bar heater, would it have any effect on them? It's like something has to be burning, and does it have to be something on their person is burning, or is it just being near to something? I'm being so pedantic about ass- this. <laughs> I think we can assume near to based on the sequence with. Um... Batman in the last issue where the he surrounds them by flame and is not touching them but it is affecting them it's starting to weaken them but I think there's something else that's going to come up later in this issue that I think is going to muddy the waters a bit did you did you read um, some of the later storylines after after the creative team moved on from JLA where we had I think it was Joe Kelly and Doug Mank yes I did yeah so did you read the burning arc I did. I don't really remember it very well, if I'm honest. I think I only read it as it was coming out, and I haven't gone back to it. Well, I guess trying to keep track of the continuity here is almost meaningless, because DC has gone through several revisions and universe resets. But that introduced the concept of the Martians had been manipulated kind of millennia ago to kind of artificially add a weakness to them. Because they were like too powerful in their own in their own right. They because they are incredibly overpowered. So it was the idea that this mental block had been added to them, where fire, in principle, can't hurt them. There's no re- like they're, they're superhuman. They can like fly, you know, from here to the moon. But there, it's like it. The presence of fire causes like a catastrophic, almost like a panic in their mind like it, it just causes complete kind of mental collapse when it's near them uh which i think is maybe like my personal person that's personally the explanation i prefer the the problem with that though is in mark wade's run the tower of uh babel storyline um jean gets set on fire and is quite badly burned ah hmm yeah <laughs> it's probably best not to, probably best not to think too much about that. Let's not dwell. No, no, sorry. But um back to the present. Um Protex uh kind of cries out in alarm as his beautiful golden cape suddenly bursts into flames. And then there's another small quiet panel as he just seems to whisper, he knows. And then uh Superman looking royally pissed, it has to be said, shatters the restraints on his chair and just yeah, just kind of flexes and and just shouts, "Your Martians!" Like suddenly, the penny the penny is dropped. 
and um, it's a beautiful moment. It's a great little panel of Superman, still one eye, still glowing red. And then, yeah, then we turn over and fire is the one thing that weakens them. And it's kind of interesting that, like, um, uh, yeah, Superman kind of picks himself up and it's interesting that he doesn't, small little things, it's interesting that he doesn't just start wailing on Protex. It's like he's still taking a moment to try and, like, assess the situation. So he points out that, you know, they thought Jean was the only Martian left. You know, it never even occurred to them that there would be more. And um, Superman is mentally kind of, like, assessing the situation because he says, like, okay, fire weakens them, yes. But if they're not in contact with fire, they're, they're as strong as he is, they're as fast as he is, they're as tough. They've also got tongues of other weird powers, which, you know, they are the Swiss army knife of um, of superheroes, it has been it has been said. Now here is a confusing moment. As Superman stands and confronts Protex, says Martians, I should have seen it before, and Protex basically says, Well, that wouldn't have helped you before, it's not gonna help you now. I'm basically still gonna kill you. But as he does this, Protex is throwing off his uh, uh his flaming cape. Yes. Now, I've always assumed, because certainly with Jean it's the case, yes. that the cape was just something he'd shapeshifted into existence, was just a part of him. Yes. But he, he shapeshifted and then put on a snazzy cape? Now, it does even raise the question, why would a, why, why would a shapeshifting alien who knows that fire is the only thing that can destroy him, why would he produce a garment which is incredibly flammable? Exactly. I'd always, yeah, like yourself, I'd always kind of assumed that, like, when Jean pretends to be a human, it might look like he's wearing clothes, but they're really just like fleshy bits of himself, which he can manipulate to resemble fabric. Yeah, exactly. So this this panel of Protex, while it's a cool looking moment and it's one of those great little villain flourishes. It's also one that when thought about makes no sense. Well, yeah. And, and that, that's the thing. It is probably, it's probably a very good idea not to think too hard about the Martians shape shifting because it's a problem. Like it's not just that they can shape shift. It's not like, um, I'll say Mystique from the X-Men no. who is still fundamentally human sized and human anatomy. Yeah, but can't can, change her mass. She can. Yeah, yeah. She can just change like her how she how she looks. She's still confined by physics. Um, at various po- points in comics history, we have seen the Martians become massive. We have seen them become small. We've seen them separate into multiple people. We've seen them seemingly generate mass out of nowhere. Jean, we know, can also go invisible and intangible. Yes. Yes. I I kind of wondered with any basically John's theory of slime-based heroes. <laughs> any any shape-shifting character whose powers are fundamentally based on fundamentally based on the idea that their body is actually just some kind of protoplasm which they can shape to look like anything. I kind of believe that much like humans produce hair which we trim maybe like making a cape which you then throw away is kind of like that i mean quite why the cape wouldn't just turn back into white goo when he kind of casks it away from his body i do not know unless unless he bought the cape unless he actually just bought a cape 
I mean, who knows? Who knows? It's a great moment, though. Comics, everybody. Well, the confusing, the confusing moment I thought you were going to bring up, PJ, is that Martians don't have heat vision. They have Martian vision. Which is an ill-defined power at best. <laughs> That's the most charitable way of putting it. Yeah, it, it is an ill-defined power. And I don't know if this is a weird kind of tit for tat, but Superman has just set fire to Protex's cape, and now Protex blasts Superman with his Martian vision, and Superman's cape bursts into flames. Well, that's how you know stuff's getting serious, because at the climax of any big story, Superman loses his cape. And then there's like a very rare level beyond that where it's like Superman is topless. And very hairy and when so, Dan Jurgens draws him. And so hairy. It's like and again, this is why this is why. This is what keep this is the sort of thing that keeps me awake at night. It's like, how does superhuman fabric work? Because Superman would need to any of these superheroes would need to have a costume which is durable enough to to endure their own powers. And well. yet and yet can rip artfully when well, the situation here's, here's, demands it. Here's how here's the thing. Superman's I've the two explanations that I've come across for the reason Superman's cape often gets ripped to shreds and the rest of his suit doesn't unless Dan Jurgens wants to draw hairy-chested Superman. And it's that, one, it's made of Kryptonian fabrics that came to Earth with Superman in his pod that he was wrapped in. Okay, yep, yep, yep. It was like his um, his baby sheet. Yeah. Two, Superman's invulnerability... <laughs> oh, God, I'm come getting on, come super on, come on, PJ. Here, ...is actually a skin-tight force field... Yes. ...that is just wide enough to encompass his skin-tight suit when he's doing his Superman stuff, but not his cape. Yes. And I personally ascribe to... Oh, God, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. Um, in the series Planetary, written by Warren Ellis <laughs> and illustrated by John Cassidy and coloured by Laura Martin, um, there is uh, a spin-off, unconnected, standalone, non-canon storyline in which an alternate universe is presented where the JLA are the good guys but they've never adopted superhuman identities and planetary of the bad guys. And in that storyline, Warren Ellis proposes a theory about how Superman's powers work. And it all hinges upon certain alien organs within his body, which have evolved to process sunlight, as we know, and turn it into an ability to manipulate the unified field harmonic, which is the four fundamental forces that drive the universe. Uh, gravity, strong ele uh, gravity, electromagnetic, strong nuclear, and weak nuclear. And so, kind of proposing the idea that all of Superman's powers, even though he is not consciously aware of what he's doing, are gravity manipulation. I mean... It kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense. Well, anyway, sorry. If you haven't now turned off the podcast <laughs> because of two absolute nerds. I, why do I know this stuff? Oh, come on. We both know. I can't remember the name of the school I went to. <laughs> like, every time I recite this, I forget something. Forget, anyway, get my name back, in Zonzor. back in Zongzor. Back in Zongzor. Prime Aid. 
uh, is kind of freaking out. They know uh, she knows the uh, the jig is up, so uh, she barks orders to Armac and says, "Supermax loose. Watch out for his heat vision, uh, and uh, you know don't let him uh, don't let him near the flower of wrath. You know um, the JLA they're still unconscious and strapped in, and we can still eliminate them." And then Armac says, "I don't think so." Yeah, and like um, Primate is like. Uh, what, 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 what? You know, how dare you compromise the mission? And then something is happening to Armek. He is kind of coming apart. Oh, I love it. It's brilliant. It's such a cool transition. Like, he's turning into green goo. Which and is... then the green goo is turning into Jean. And then he's back, the jolly green giant. And... Again, buying into the theory that John, Jean and all the Martians are really, at their core, just big piles of goo, um, we get an awesome shot of Jean kind of posing while his arm is still kind of reconstructing itself. Like, he just yep. has a chunk missing out of his arm. And he says, I left the real Armek in the Gobi Desert. So Jean was in issue three after all. He was there all along. Wait, does that mean... The Jean... Beat, beat up, up Kyle. <laughs> you prefer- yeah, maybe. Like, yeah. <laughs> I bet that's one of the things that just never came up. Like Kyle just never, never thought to ask. Um, but Jean, of course, points out that, um, you know, did you think I wouldn't recognize this city? I mean, for crying out loud, it's called Zongzor. Like, it, you know, the Martians clearly, we, we spell things in a certain way. But he also, he also refers to it as the most infamous name in Martian history. Yeah, so it's kind of like a bit of a broad example. It'd be, it'd be kind of like someone going, won't you come join me in Adolf Hitler Tower? Uh, it's a really nice place. I think you'll be quite happy there. <laughs> and he's like, hmm, oh, well, something about that name. It just kind of reminds me of something, something bad. <laughs> um, yeah, and Prime Age, she, she's like just... She's doing the whole kind of um, invasion of the body snatchers thing, where she's just kind of pointing and screaming and going like, like John Jong's betrayer, traitor. I mean, get over it, primate. Get over it, indeed. <laughs> um, but speaking of deserts, I love this little moment. This is a great panel. So you get Armek and Zoom, Zoom. Um, basically hightailing it towards Zonzor, and Armek's just complaining. He says, this is what happens when you deal with a green Martian. They're all the same. What makes him think he can steal a form I designed? I'll kill him. <laughs> it is an interesting little glimpse into Martian culture, the idea that if you're all shapeshifters, how do you maintain any form of identity? Yeah. Actually, yeah. PJ, here's an interesting question for you. Um, we last saw Zoom... I'm trying to just piece it together in my head. We last saw Zoom being punched into orbit, and then crash landing to Earth. Yes. So his costume is now torn. I've just noticed this too and had, I think, the exact same thought. Yeah, okay, so we've already, you know, we've already touched upon, you know, superhero comic, uh, superhero costumes, particularly if you're a shapeshifter. And Armek has an injury on his side, kind of hidden behind a speech bubble, where, like, sparks are coming out of his body. Yep. Maybe... We're still not supposed to have realised they're Martians? Well, the, it's like he's a shapeshifter who has turned into a robot body. Is he actually a robot now that he's shapeshifted? I 
I don't know. <laughs> don't I think know. this is going to start getting into all sorts of weird Martian philosophy discussions that my brain cannot cope with. Okay, so can we assume that Zoom, <laughs> Zoom was Zoom was punched out of orbit and was incapacitated? Maybe it's that if they shifted back into their normal forms, they would have injuries where the damage to their costume or, or armor is, and if they stay in this form. It's just cosmetic, not an actual physical injury to them. Maybe they're like method actors. <laughs> or, you know, like, it, it would just be... The, they have to preserve continuity at all times. My, yeah, stay th- in character. The thing I'm just trying to get my head around is, I'm going to assume, for the sake of Jean, I'm going to assume that Jean did not beat up Kyle and Wally. No, that well, there was a line, wasn't there, about when they found out um, Jean had betrayed the League, the fight left them. Yeah, so we'd have to kind of wonder what happened there. But we have to assume that Zenturian and Armek came back, defeated Flash and Green Lantern. Then at some point after that, Jean had to swap out with Armek because we have to assume that the Armek who's been in Zongzor all this time was actually Jean. And Zenturian was there as well because he got beaten up by Batman. So my thought is actually is Jean probably replaced Armek after Green Lantern beat him up in the desert because then ah. you get that bit when Zenturian, uh, when Flash gets back and Armek and Zenturian then attack them in the Watchtower. I think that is where Jean has taken the place. We can probably infer that they say, "Oh, Martian Manhunt has betrayed you," and Flash and Green Lantern are very surprised by this, which is enough for Zenturian alone ah. to take them out. And John doesn't save them because he's like, I have to keep up the deception for now, but he didn't actually attack. What's that thing in like American courts where you have to have like reasonable reasonable doubt? Yeah. You know, that's the thing, like we could never make a conviction stick against John for beating up Kyle and Wally because <laughs> we we can't we can't say with certainty that Zenturian did not commit the crime alone. Exactly. Um but yeah, so so sorry. Um Good God, so many tangents this episode. Um, but Armek and Zoom are racing back to join the fight. And Zoom has one of those um, just classic villain villainous lines of dialogue where he's like, uh, it's proper kind of like moustache twirling, where he's like, so what? We were going to kill him anyway, you know? Yeah. Just to, prove, just to prove how evil they are. And then we cut back to Superman, still on fire, but really doesn't care. And basically is like, all right, we've destroyed each other's capes. Now let's have a fair fight. And of course, this is maybe where people like to level the the Boy Scout kind of thing at Superman, where I actually think this is positive because he's he's still like, you know, he's still not just beating the crap out of Protex. Like he's still trying to be honorable about it. And I don't think that's a weakness in this kind of problem, in this situation. I, I agree. I don't think it's a weakness. And I think it also shows that Superman, he has enough confidence in himself to think that I can beat him without the I can beat him in a fair fight. Mm. I don't need to resort to these tactics because I can do this, but I'll give him the chance. I'll tell you who is willing to resort to tactics, weird tactics though, and it is Protex. And yep. we get a lovely panel where I've got to say like, I've, I, this panel is actually kind of ingrained into my brain. Like the way Howard Porter draws Protex here, kind of cackling as his body starts to come apart into white plasma. Like, 
that's probably just like every time I'm 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 writing a story and I I want to say oh yeah and this person kind of like cackles or laughs like the devil or something like that I always think of this panel I just want to have like a little JPEG of it saved so I can always point people to it and say do this <laughs> make it look <laughs> like this please um yeah and and uh, as he comes apart this beautiful kind of golden golden long-haired superman kind of turns into great big white thing with like it just it's just like raw raw fluid shape at this point with a big evil face on it yeah with but with still with a, a mouse with sharp teeth and then a big long purple tongue yeah and it's like he's white all over and he's got like these purple veins kind of going across him it it, it I gotta say, I really just love the weirdness of the White Martians. They are. But what I love as well, though, is he's still popping out of the top of um, Protex's torso. So you've still got the the golden Superman arms yeah. and the legs there, while this thing is just coming off his shoulders. And well, I like this because again, if you really are a shapeshifter whose body is just raw clay that can be shaped, it it makes sense. Like it's kind of internally consistent. Like. If you've got those powers, shapeshifting is actually one of your greatest abilities. Yeah. Like, you know, why why be a conventional physical body that someone can just punch? Like, why not just be fluid? And and, and as Protex is doing, like, he, he basically, like, envelops Superman. Like, he's just covered in... Well, he's just covered in white goo, basically, for lack of a better word. Like, and Protex's weird cackling face is on Superman's chest. And then, it, then he sort of seems to start filling Superman's mouth and nose and ears, and and essentially trying to suffocate and and kill him by going inside him. Yeah, he's like, I can penetrate your blood vessels, I can enter your brain, and Superman, who's like been kind of like mummified in Protex's weird goo, is now starts to spin on the spot. It's brilliant. I love this moment. Which is a classic Superman kind of manoeuvre, the old human human top. Uh, and at the same time, uh, and this is where we get that kind of like... This is something I think, I think Morrison handles very well, actually. In, in, a, in an action scene, we get that weird kind of... We are moving between a lot of different things simultaneously. Yeah. And I think, it's, I think it's just balanced very well. Because at the same time, Jean and Primade are fighting essentially in like a tornado of like, like a like a real looney tunes style spinning whirling dervish of fists yeah it's 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 this thing where it looks like they're in the background of the while superman's drilling into the ground in the in the foreground um oh wait am i being an idiot i might be being an idiot i don't i i i don't know what i was i'd kind of assumed this is me realizing something i'd kind of assumed that that spinning top in the final panel was Jean and Primade kind of fighting, but you're right. Oh no, that's that's Superman. Oh my god, I am an idiot. Right, okay, completely an idiot. Yeah, um, Superman is spinning and drilling down into the ground. And um, I love this. It starts with the sound effect of vrrr, and then it quickly becomes vrrr. <laughs> it's great. It is wonderful, yeah. And um, yeah, and Jean just uh, punches Primade, and she doesn't seem massively bothered by this. Um, and we get like a little glimpse into Martian culture because she basically says, yeah. you know, you're not a fighter. That was pathetic. Uh, you're just a green philosopher. I am a true Martian soldier. And I love this because she, sa- she says like, 
I can transform my body into a thousand battle configurations. The flesh vortex, the storm of hammers. Like, I'd, amazing. Like, you know, a culture of shapeshifters. Uh, of course they they would, like, learn and teach each other tricks. Like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. If there's a good shape to turn into, let's all just copy it. There's also more of that beautiful Morrison throwaway stuff he does where he conveys a big idea very quickly and then just moves on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and But but also so clearly. There's so, there's so much clarity there. You know exactly what she means when she talks like that, and oh, it's beautiful. And Jean um, flicks a big switch to deactivate the Flower of Wrath and basically says, yeah, well, of course you can, you know, you, you psychopath, you know. Um, <laughs> that's all you people ever did, like the pale Martians. Uh, all you ever brought to our culture was war and hatred and destruction. Uh, and uh, you see the Flower of Wrath kind of like switching off. And um, John is saying like, you know, we reached out to you and you responded with genocide. And then before he can finish, Primade kind of screams and disintegrates into a, a kind of a stream of white plasma again, which kind of just smashes John up through the ceiling. I'm assuming that's the Storm of Hammers. It could be the Storm of Hammers. I, I would I would have preferred to actually see some proper kind of like Black and Decker kind of, you know, um, proper refined steel DIY hammers here. But I'll settle, for, I'll settle for this. It's a very cool panel. And then she smashes Jean out of the building. Yeah, and kind of up. Uh, nice, little, nice little arc, good trajectory. And then they smash into the ground outside Zongzor. And then Primate takes her natural shape, takes the white Martian form here, which I think is the first time we actually see it. Yeah, it's because, you know, at, at many points in the series, we see Zhong's kind of more Martian form. And he has like, um, obviously, like an elongated head, hmm. uh, longer limbs, that sort of thing. But the, the white Martians have a like a really, I quite like their design, actually. They've got like a really mad kind of like, diamond-shaped head in, in in a way and like weird little flaps at the side of their mouth where you get like the impression that they've got like kind of concertina skin which expands when they when they open their mouths and, and a long tail with some kind of stinger on it as well yeah they're very like you know they're they're they're, they're, they're almost like um a little lizard-like maybe like uh kind of they kind of walk on their haunches that sort of thing Definitely a lot more humanoid, but a lot more kind of, well, a lot more alien, frankly, almost like dinosaur-like or something. Yeah, it and it still it it works because it's still you can see the connection to the Green Martian natural form and design, but it is tougher, more brutal. It's it's the something from the same world, but designed for war rather than for thinking. It does raise so many interesting questions because again, if Martian culture was founded upon the idea upon the fact that their people are shapeshifters with infinite variety. I think it's a really interesting idea that Jean and her are essentially the same species. Like there there is I, I don't believe there's like a real difference between the green Martians and the white Martians. It's more like a cultural cultural thing. Yeah. Where you how you look is based on your ideology in a way. Like the white Martians I, I choose to believe being more warlike chose to look this way like cho yeah. chose this as their as their appearance 
Yeah, if it's, it's something they chose that then through the years just became their natural state then. Because mm. even even of course like Zhong's current form is a is a is a weird compromise in a while, isn't it? In a way, isn't it? Like he's uh, he's making himself look more human. He's like a he's like an amalgam between Martian and human. Yeah, he's given himself a more human shape, um, still green to show that he's he's different. Um, but I, th- I think he specifically says it's to try and make himself more acceptable to humans. I'm he, sure that's come up before. He's still got those those amazing eyebrows, or not eyebrows, but he's got like a, a super brow. Yeah, like, oh, I do. I do love Jean. He's so cool. It's a shame. Uh, it's a shame he's never really sustained a, a solo series on his own. No, but it's because, and again, I feel like this is something that's really been lost in recent years, and that's a tragedy, but it's because he's Mr. JLA. He's mm. Mr. Justice League. That's his home. Yeah, the big kind of emotional heart of it all. Yeah. Something of which we're, we we see, actually, on, on this page, because as Primade kind of towers over Jean, we see Armek and Zoom coming up behind her. Yeah. And and she's she's gloating. She's like, this planet that means so much to you, is that it? And then there is the whole, you can't be one of them, you're always going to be a freak. Who cares for a thing like you? Where are your friends now? Poor Jean. He's about to get it. <laughs> and then we have uh, a shameless and wonderful hero moment where you hear... You know, I, honestly, like, you've got to... If you're a hero, just thank the villains for giving you such a lead-in. Because it goes like, where are your friends now? And then, from off-panel, where we always are. Right here. And then you just see Wonder Woman, Flash, Aquaman, and Green Lantern looking very 90s, very proud, very gnarly, just badass, radical, all the other words we were tossing around at that point in time. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, round two. Wonder Woman's got the lasso, all just, she's ready to go. Green Lantern, there's energy pouring out of his ring. Flash is about to run, that is a runner's pose, and Aquaman <laughs> has clenched his fist. And Aquaman's here as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I do feel oh, I, I do feel like I'm picking on, on Aquaman a bit. Like, Let's be fair, we're about to get an amazing Aquaman moment. So. I know, and I, I still, I said it before, I like his costume. As weird as it is, I do like how he looks. It's, it's a powerful stance. But before we get to Aquaman, there's some more Flash and Green Lantern fun. Yeah, and it's like, I, I don't know if, if they had like a, a quick team catch-up between panels or whether Jean telepathically notified the team that we were dealing with Martians because everyone's up to speed now. Like everyone knows exactly. I, w- I would imagine Jean used a telepathic link. It's not fully been established yet, but it is something that will be clear in, in future issues. So I, I imagine he's done that. And this, and and again, this starts to this page starts to highlight the problem with Martians, or like, you know, that classic film, the problem with Martians. <laughs> um, if you know their weakness and you can act quickly enough, they're fairly easy to take down. And uh, yeah, and thankfully, uh, moving quickly is the Flash's speciality. It's his whole thing. And we see Armek kind of like charging towards uh, Flash and Green Lantern. And Kyle is pretty confident because he's not worried about taking down Armek. He's just struggling to decide how to take him down. You know, yeah. what's the most creative thing I can do right now? And Flash just casually goes, hold that thought. But then in the blink of an eye, Armek is suddenly surrounded by candlesticks. 
<laughs> and there are footprints in the snow all around him. And Armek is freaking out because he is now utterly powerless. I haven't and, seen the footprints before. That's brilliant. I know. I'd, 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 I'd never noticed them before now either. And there's a little blur around around Flash and his feet are smoking. So, yep. again, just having so much fun with the his powers. Again, just using them in a really creative way on the comic book page. And then uh, Green Lantern drops a 16-ton weight on him. Genuinely, that's what he does. Yeah, it even says 16 tons on the side of it. I love it. It's just such a brilliant... Because we know that Kyle is a fan of cartoons, old-school cartoons. That's come up in, in his own series and, and will be shown again. So he just goes for it. And then Flash says, low-quality finish, Lantern. <laughs> yeah, and then probably the um, the cheekiest line in the series of Kyle going, yeah, kiss my ring, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned an awesome moment with Aquaman. I did. Here it is. Would you like to do the honours? So Zoom uh, is advancing towards Aquaman. He's got him backed up against some uh, debris, which I think we can assume came about when John was smashed out of Zonzor. Hmm. And Zoom is saying, you must be Aquaman. What can you do? You can't fly or run fast, can you? Your skin may be tough, but not so tough I can't just cut through as he's using his super speed to cut through some... some, de- some Looks like a big rock again, to his left. Again, what, gl- gloating. Why didn't he act? If yeah. he acted quicker. And then he says, what can you do apart from talk to fish? So Aquaman tells him. And uh, Aquaman, I mean, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm ruining the moment. I'm just thinking, no, do it, do no, it. I'm just thinking like, he starts to use his own telepathic powers, which of course are a bit more limited than Jong's, but... He goes, well, what can I do? Let me think. I can locate your brain's basal ganglia, the part inherited from your marine ancestors, and I can give you a seizure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Zoom collapses to the ground. Just clutches his head, and then the next panel, he's sort of writhing on the ground, sticking his tongue out. And and I love this. Aquaman says, this one doesn't want to fight. He's got a headache. Uh, sorry, I really have no idea why I said that. And Flash is like, uh, oh, don't worry about it. Sometimes, you know, there's one-liners just, uh, you know, they slip right out. Um, For me, that's the moment. That's the moment where Aquaman officially rejoins the JLA. Yeah. I, I, here's a question for you. Has Aquaman ever used this power again? I don't know. I can't remember. And here's another question for you. Now, I, I did study biology at university, but I confess I do not know a lot about the brain or the basal ganglia is that something which all humans have i would imagine because it's it's a real sounds like a real scientific term or is that something that only martians have or is it something that only zoom has because he's pretending to be a human my point being is can aquaman just give human seizures whenever he wants now i'm not 100 percent sure i would assume uh, yes um <laughs> Because we are all descended from marine creatures, yeah. Uh, if you go back far enough, but I think it's not something Aquaman would do to a human. I feel like in this instance, he feels like I don't really have a choice here because this guy is much faster than me, has the powers of Superman, and I'm just going to have to be brutal and take him down. Yeah, I just that it makes me scared basically to think that Aquaman can at will maybe he doesn't you know he shows remarkable restraint but anytime he wants he can just give someone a seizure don't mess with him don't mess with him don't mess with a fish dude um 
but yeah, uh, and then so, you know, those two have been incapacitated with um, incredible uh, ease, leaving um, people to wonder well, what happened to Primeade. And um, as Jean says, Wonder Woman happened to Primeade. And high above Earth, in orbit, uh, we see Wonder Woman and Primeade fighting as... Well, let's be honest, it's not really a fight, is it? No, I mean, Wonder Woman is basically like simultaneously restraining and kind of throttling Primeade with the lasso of truth. Yeah. Weird little touch. Yeah. The, the White Martians also have a mouth in their stomach. I don't know if that's something they always have or something Primeade's trying to do here to... Uh, that's a good point, actually, yeah. Actually, no, come to think of it, um, Protex has one on the next Yes, he pages. does, doesn't he? Yeah. Yes, he does. So that must just be... God, they're weird. Yeah, God bless them. I mean, um, as a weird little thing, um, Kyle is, has created a telescope with his ring in order to look uh, up into the atmosphere, and that is what we're seeing in the final panel because it is ringed by green. Oh, yeah. Again, so that's a detail I hadn't noticed before. That it does explain the little smile on his face there while he's making the telescope. <laughs> um, but yeah, but what's happened to Superman, PJ? Well, um, he's drilled down into the Earth. And basically, Protex is... It looks like winning and monologuing. Um, so it's a long monologue, so I won't repeat the whole thing. But essentially... What are the footnotes? Protex is saying that Martians came to Earth um, years ago, like centuries and centuries and centuries ago, at the development of the human race at that point. And they messed around with the human race. Without their interference, humans would have all evolved to basically be superhumans. But the White Martians stunted our development, and it means that I go for a run and I get very tired very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I also blame my um my lack of physical strength on white martian intervention and not all the, know, not all the bagels i eat you know martians gave me asthma that's <laughs> <laughs> martians mean i have to wear glasses <laughs> honestly um no yeah and superman of course he, he knows what to do when someone's monologuing you just stay quiet and focus on you know your secret plan and Protex uh, kind of releases Superman because he was kind of enveloping him. Yeah. Uh, but then reforms behind him so that he can kind of like grab him in like a kind of wrestling lock or whatever. But he um, also seems to be sweating. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. Is he sweating? Like, discuss. I mean, he's look, that panel where he's sort of taken on that gold colour again and he's sweating white. That could be him melting. But in the previous panel, he is sweating blue, so who knows? I just wonder, like, again, if you are an alien shapeshifter made of white goo, did he generate sweat glands? <laughs> is is he kind of just exuding a kind of liquid because clay or modelling clay doesn't cope very well at high temperatures? Or is he... Or is it just storytelling shorthand to show that it's very hot here? Well, here's here's what I think. I think it's the storytelling shorthand because, honestly, it was a few reads before I picked up exactly what was going on in the next couple of panels where basically Superman says, you want the Earth Protex, it's all yours, or maybe this is as close as you like to get. And they're in some kind of red cavern. So I assume what's happened is Superman has drilled down close to the Earth's core 
where it is incredibly hot. Therefore, no fire though, and yet it's still weakening Protex. I know, so. I know. I was so apparently extreme heat can do it as well. I guess. Apparently so. It's probably best not to think about it. Yeah, let's just move on. Um, so Superman, by being calm and collected and letting the villain just monologue incessantly, um, is now just kind of holding Protex, who has lost his powers, uh, by the throat. And um, Protex gets a few final jabs in. You know, basically says, you know, you're an idiot. You know, you could be running a real, real good scam here. You could be a god. You could be ruling the planet. You know, when you look at them, you 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 hate humanity because they're they're weak. You they hate you because you're a god, and you knowing your heart, they're inferior. Like really, just really just kind of like rubbing rubbing salt into the wound. And then at ground level, we just see Protex getting punched the ever loving hell back up through the planet the planet's surface, back back into Zonzor. <laughs> Incredible aim from Superman. And Superman, well, Superman. And, yeah, and, and Superman just goes. They believe in me, and in my heart, I believe in them. And that's the fight over. And that is the fight over, basically. And um, Flash, uh, Green Lantern, and Jean rejoin. And then Primate comes through the ceiling. Yeah, this is a real kind of like, <laughs> you know, punching up and punching down kind of scenario. And and again, oh, I love this moment. So Wonder Woman flies back down, and because they were fighting in space, she says, can't believe how long she held her breath up there. And Green Lantern responds with, so how long can you hold your breath? And Wonder Woman gives a perfectly reasonable answer, obviously longer than Primade. What a strange question. Why should anyone know how long they can hold their breath? Can I just say, I love how, again, this goes into my ongoing thing about this whole series just being about professional respect and courtesy. I love the fact that not one of them has had that moment where they go, this is weird, wasn't it? Like, <laughs> no, no one's ever gone like, what the hell is happening? Like, Martians, what the, you know... Instead, everyone's just like, oh, you know, business. You know, I love the fact like weirdness is their job. You know, this is bizarre. But for anyone else, this would be like freak the hell out. But for JLA, it's like, well, that was inconvenient. But this then, in response to Wonder Woman's, why should anyone know how long they can hold their breath? Batman enters, dragging behind him four unconscious members of the Hyper Clan and just says, three minutes, 15 seconds. You'd be surprised why. (laughs) And a a lovely little line from Kyle where he goes... Only four of them, Batman. You're slowing down. God, I love Batman so much. <laughs> so cool. Um, but yeah, but the team are together again. Like this is this is it the 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 uh, the triumphant return. Now you'd be forgiven at this point for forgetting that there was a whole Martian invasion fleet um, that was about to hit up Earth and and ruin everything. Because with everything else happening, I'd forgotten. Yeah, no, but- indeed, indeed, and. You could probably you could probably have filled a whole story about like you know an army of superhuman Martians kind of just raining death onto the cities of Earth, but that's not really the point here. No. So instead, what we get is Superman reminding us that there's an invasion fleet, and then he says, "How do you want to handle this?" And Batman just says decisively, <laughs> "What can we use?" Like instantly thinking, and again, just little subtle thing, but of course, Superman's superhuman senses mean. He's just aware of this stuff. You know, the others might actually have forgotten. Well, probably not Batman. But he is like, look, I can hear him. You know, things are still kind of going to hell. And it's nice that what's about to happen isn't, as you might expect, a great big fight. 
I actually quite like that. It doesn't end on a okay. So the JLA are just going to ride out and beat the crap out of this army. They have which to, they probably could. Which they probably could, but they've got to be smarter about it. And this is this really just goes to the heart of what this series is like, where Jean says, "Well, look, we have cameras here. They were go the Hyper Clan were going to broadcast our executions to the world. You know, we can use them to address the planet." Uh, so they get it set up. Protex, who's now surrounded by more candles, presumably courtesy of Flash, basically says, "Leave the maggots to their fate. You can still." He's still trying. Bless him. You can still join us as rulers of the world. Give out Protex. You've lost. Yeah, and they just ignore him, which is nice. And this is nice because they're like, "We need somebody to address the people of Earth. We need somebody to spread this message about how we can win." And it's interesting that we have. Kyle, the new... The everyman. The everyman. And we have Batman, the longest... Well, basically like Superman's oldest friend. And the two of them turn to Superman. And you just get it from like different perspectives. Kyle, the everyman, who up until getting the ring, would have lived as a normal human and would have seen how important Superman is. And just says like, Superman, it's got to be you. You know, they believe in you. And Batman just says... I agree. They'll trust you. And Superman's like, you know, very well. I like, it's kind of like, I always like the thing about Superman where he's, I I imagine that Superman has doubts. He has worries and concerns. Like he is human. But I think the thing that, because he's not a perfect, he's not perfect. That's the thing. He is, he is flawed and everything. But I think the thing that makes Superman Superman is that when the time comes, he puts those behind him. I think there's a really good example of that, of of, of him even giving voice to that and, and then acting on it in a couple of issues' time, which, given what we've discussed, how we're doing this, we'll cover in about seven or eight episodes' time. <laughs> we'll cover in about seven or eight years. But yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're referring to. I just love that, like, everyone looks to Superman, and in that moment, he knows what he has to be, So he just gets on camera and says, people of Earth, this is Superman. And he speaks his name in his own logo because he's cool enough to do that. Because he's that good. And of course he... Yeah, it's just an amazing public speaker. You know, like, first time, first try, just perfect. And we, we cut to a city somewhere, doesn't really matter where, where giant UFOs... Literally just UFOs are floating. They're, they're flying saucers, and I yeah. love that touch. I love that they're flying saucers. Well, here's a question. This came out, uh, this would have been in April 1997. And what year did Independence Day come out? Oh, that was like 95, I think. So, I mean, you think about the 90s, you know, kind of like the X-Files, Independence Day. Aliens were, a, aliens were kind of a big thing. Flying saucers were back. They were yeah. a thing. And and it's that classic science fiction always had Martians with flying saucers. That was that was their ship. And so I I love that just the small touch that that's what Howard Porter's drawn here is is flying saucers. And interestingly, uh coming down from the flying saucers are I guess more white Martians, of course, but they are wearing the strange kind of spacesuits that the, the the people who attacked the satellite back in episode, issue one were. 
And I don't know if this is, again, a intentional suit which the White Martian troops are wearing or whether it's some kind of form they've adopted for invasion purposes. I'm not entirely sure. And we'll never know. And we'll never know. Because um, Superman is a, is a... Yeah, and we see Superman's face on the side of like a, a giant TV uh, billboard on the side of a skyscraper. And he's he's speaking to the people, like his voice is being broadcast across the planet to every television set. Yeah, and he 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 inspires everyone. He says, "I know it's difficult, but try not to panic. You must fight against the invaders. We are on our way, but we can't reach everyone in time." And then he he tells them they're afraid of fire, and the people look up and immediately start setting things on fire. Like it's, um, it's so good. Start lifting up bits of paper, kind of cigarettes. Uh, I think someone's. Well, they might just be raising a bottle to the sky. Um, yeah, and everyone just raises their flames kind of skyward. So what I love about these two panels, one, you've got a guy wearing an MC Sluggo t-shirt. There, we, there we go. Yeah, the, the, the reference lives on. But next to him is a guy wearing a t-shirt that says, official invasion t-shirts, $15, holding a stack of money. Uh, and then in the next panel, he looks really upset because now the invasion's not ha- happening. No one's going to want a T-shirt. And there's also a guy drinking heavily from a bottle uh, wearing a T-shirt that says Smitty and Bruce rule. I do not get the reference. If anyone out there can shed any light on who Smitty and Bruce were, maybe only Howard Porter knows. <laughs> him, and, him and his two mates at the time, Smitty and Bruce. Um, but yeah, so then uh, across the globe at the, the Eiffel Tower, another culturally significant, easily recognizable places um we see people lighting fires uh just going hog wild with the fire and we see the hyper clan or sorry the white martians kind of rendered useless they are trapped in rings of fire they are all just standing down basically and then you get a nice green lantern superman moment where uh they're flying over a group of Martians surrounded by fire. And Green Lantern shouts, they're surrendering. We did it. And Superman basically tells you what the entire point of these four issues has been. The Justice League of America won't let you down. So we 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 cut, smash cut, to the skill zone. So this must this is straight after. Yeah, so... Because Superman is still capeless. It's still capeless, yeah. He hasn't gone back to pick up a new cape. Um, but we are floating in a just vast, empty, white void. And in the centre of this is a giant ship attached to which are tons of the UFOs, which we saw kind of like landing on cities. Like this is clearly like the mothership of the White Martians. Yeah. And the... Somebody, I, I'm not entirely sure who is speaking it, but somebody says it seems to be some kind of homeostatic continuum existing out with conventional space-time. I'm, I'm assuming that's Superman. That's probably Superman, yeah. Uh, you know, because that's the kind of thing he deals with on a regular basis. And Kyle is like, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I said. <laughs> well, in the previous panel, there's just a cry of awesome, which I think was Kyle. Yeah, <laughs> it's... It does have a green a green font, so we can assume perhaps that it was it was Kyle. Also, neither speech bubble has the uh, the wiggly bit that all of Jean's normally do. So, you know, it 
somehow I kind of assumed that the whole JLA were here, but maybe it is just Jean. Just the three of them. Yeah, because they're, they're basically saying that this is why, of course, we were never able to find where the Hyperclang's broadcasts were coming from. It's because their ships weren't in the regular universe. They were kind of like adjacent to the universe. And this is what that place looks like. It's just a white void, basically. There's nothing here. Yeah, and this is... You know, Superman does say to Jean, you figured out they were Martians when you saw the city. And then Jean does admit that his trying to play along with the Hyperclan put the League in danger, and um, he miscalculated. So I think it did get further than Jean intended, is what we can imply from that. And it's also nice that Superman doesn't hold a grudge or anything no. like that and just says, no, forget about it. We won. Um, but, you know, what do we do now? And we realise that looking through a, a window, we're looking into this chamber where it's a really odd and quite striking image where all of the white Martians are kind of floating in rows and they appear to be dormant or... I don't know. In some kind of stasis. Yeah, yeah, like one of them is just kind of like snarling slightly. I don't know if they're like sleeping or they're kind of um, being temporarily paralysed or something. It's, it's just really odd, basically. And then um, Jean, and this is, this is it's quite a dark little moment, actually. Just a close-up on Jean's face with some shadows. And he says, um, there are methods punishments you may not approve but i must be the final arbiter you do not know the culture yeah you were not there and yeah and because jean is faced with well again like killing goes against what the jla stand for but jean is faced with like the 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 question of what do we do with these people like i thought i was the last living remnant of my race I've now found that there are 70 more of my people, but they're all murdering maniacs, basically, with the power to kind of destroy mountains. So it's like, you think, like, what do you do? Like, is Jean going to, like, execute all these people, all all these Martians, and kind of, like, maybe they deserve it, you know? But it's like you couldn't try them in a human court of law. And they're also like the last connection to his culture, to his planet. But we don't find out straight away what he's going to do to them. Instead, we cut to everyone's favourite desert, the Sahara Desert. Now, this is a thing that um, that I like, where they, they, they follow up on and just a, a small detail from the first part of the storyline, where we had a moment where the Hyperclan apparently made paradise in the desert they reseeded the sahara they made it green and lush and we get there now and what they did has just crumbled to dust yeah it just kind of showed that it was entirely superficial like it it wasn't sustainable and again more than more than ever we're getting now the themes of the book and what kind of what grant morrison wants to wants to achieve with it because at its core this is what the Hyperclan were accusing the JLA of. They said, look, you have the power of gods, but what have you actually done to help the planet? You know, you've never, say, you've never healed the ecosystem. You've never prevented global warming. Like, inequality is still massive. Uh, crime exists. Injustice, racism. Like, you've never stepped in and used all your incredible power to fix things. Yeah, and 
Superman says they said they would fix the world. It doesn't work that way. But that does leave some of the leaguers sort of feeling a bit, well, why are we doing this then? Yeah, like what what is the line between doing nothing and letting humanity be free or kind of controlling humanity in a way, like keeping them safe, but also being like a a dictator, like being like a, a kind of unelected king of the planet. And of course, it's Superman who has to deliver the final summation, I guess. And he basically says, look, you know, I, I don't have easy answers. I can just tell you what I believe. Humankind has to be allowed to climb to its own destiny. Uh, we can't carry them there. And Flash says, but, you know, what's the point then? Like, why should they need us at all? And probably just the most beautiful sentiment for me, uh, and yeah. <laughs> such a sad, a sad nerd fellow, is, as Superman puts it, we're here to catch them if they fall. And it's lovely. It's so, it is lovely. It's so powerful. Um, and again, like, you know, reading into kind of Grant Morrison's kind of like meta narrative, like everything he's done with superheroes over the years and the things he's talked about, I don't know, some of his more autobiographical things, both his, A, his autobiography and um, Flex Mentolo. Uh, yeah. Where the idea is that if superhumans are daft really you know like as everyone says it everyone knows it oh they're just weird power fantasies for children you're not meant to overanalyze them you're not meant to do a podcast about them kind of 23 years later <laughs> but his kind of thesis is but the super but what do superhumans what do super people do it's like they save people and it's such a powerful little notion particularly for the i don't know i guess like the age that most people get into them it's like Superhumans don't ask for anything in return. They they're just there to keep you safe, it's, and to protect you and to let you kind of reach your own potential. I think that one line to catch them if they fall, that's peak Superman. That is just that sums everything up you need to know about who Superman, and then by extension, the rest of the superheroes in all of publishing who followed him, all the teams, all of it. That's that's the point. Mm. And and it's why it's why I because I'm again it's why I I get emotional about superhero comics which is very which is daft of course and bit you know but it's yeah. like Superman doesn't exist there is no there is no Superman what I'm, oh sorry spoilers yeah Superman is not real and yet he is a creation of humanity and there's a reason why Superman has endured. For so many years. It's why the Justice League have endured for so many years. It's because something... If, even if Superman isn't real, he represents the best thing we created. It's a reason why he's not just strongman in cape who punches things. And an idea like this kind of endures because it represents the absolute best we're capable of. It's one of the reasons why... In recent years, I've found myself more and more... I've always been a Superman fan, but in recent years, I've I've been loving the character so much more because, God damn it, we need him. Yeah. I know, and that's the thing. It's like... And I, and again, I, I think it's why Morrison, the work he's done with Superman, you know, in this original JLA series and in things like All-Star Superman, it's, it kind of reminds you, yes, why we need a Superman, even a fictional Superman. It's because it's... Yeah, it is the it's the gold. Like it is, it is the it is the the thing, the best in us, 
on the page. It, it, it's it's incredible. It's and again, and this is why. Um, I think this is kind of why I love comics. Like they yep. are the the in in many ways the cheapest, most disposable, most, least artistic. And I'm using so many air quotes here because I make <laughs> I make comics and I love them. But it's why they're sneered at. They're sneered at and kind yeah. of like not considered real literature. And yet, at the heart of it is such this pure and wonderful idea, which is kind of transcendent. And I do apologize because I've kind of just completely gotten on my soapbox there for several minutes. I do. I. I. I I'm well, sorry, PJ. That no, that's I. I 100 agree with you on that point, John. And um, you know, you'd think that would be the end of this issue as well because it would be a lovely moment to end on. But we do <laughs> have a few I more pages to cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, PJ. Um, what what happens next? Uh, JLA build a watchtower on the moon. That's pretty basic. Don't need to really get into too much detail about that. But again, it is like it is a you know it's Morrison kind of planting his flag in the sand because it's like look we blew up a satellite, so now we're building a new base for the JLA. Which even after Morrison left the series, I think for the longest time, the watchtower was just taken as standard as this is yeah. where the JLA are based. I think Mark Wade expanded the Watchtower. There was a, a story where it, he made it bigger, but um, it was still that was where they were right up, I think, until um, Infinite Crisis, and then when they rebooted the the universe. I think I might be wrong about that, but yeah, I'm trying to think like, or maybe it was Brad Meltzer actually who took them back to the Hall of Justice. Yeah, I've got to say, not a fan of the Hall of Justice. I kind of, I kind of miss the Watchtower. I. I like it, but I like it as an idea that it's it's the on Earth bit where they can have sort of as a public front, and then the real work happens elsewhere, which I think was an idea someone once put forward. Um, it's, it's like the uh, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, yeah. Every many companies have like a public facing like liaison point, but the corporate offices will be elsewhere. Yeah, like on the moon. Yeah. Um. But yeah, and then we just get a lovely kind of final heroic pose where the JLA are in their new base and they're looking down on planet Earth. And Ky- Which is a photo of Earth. It is actually, yes, it is actually a perfect photo. Oh, good grief. Yeah, I'm zooming in. There's a tiny bit of aliasing around the photo of the planet Earth. So yes, you're right. <laughs> um, good old, good old the 90s. And yeah, Kyle, Kyle just looks at the planet Earth and goes, nice view. Oh, that would also be a lovely ending. That would also be a lovely ending. It's the story of We men- have an epilogue. It's, it's like uh, it's like Return of the King here. Like ending after ending after ending. Um, oh, this, this is it now, this epilogue. One page epilogue. So PJ, what happens in the epilogue? So we're in a bathroom. Uh some guy, Bob Gray, apparently is his name, and he's he's washing his face and it says he's had another bad night. And um it talks about how he feels he, he just doesn't feel very good. It says he feels like he's been lobotomized with a corkscrew. And he's been having weird dreams. And apparently one of his dreams is an image of Zonzor with some figures flying around it. And he kind of is washing his face. And as he looks at his face in the mirror, he kind of, the caption says, uh, Bob won't ever know that exactly 69 other people in countries all around the world are having the same strange dream night after night. And in his reflection we briefly see, I guess, Protex or a white Martian kind of looking back at him. Yeah. And he says he, uh, 
he gets a kind of like a familiar feeling inside him and he feels like he's lost something incredible uh, a feeling so big and terrible it makes him want to cry uh and then we get the final panel where he's he's a fireman he's a fireman he just uh, sliding down a pole towards a fire engine and uh yeah so um but of course you know we say but you know you know bob gray is a grown man and you know he doesn't cry because he's got work to do so he uh checks his mail feeds his bird goes outside and joins the human race john turned them all into humans yeah and wiped their memory um which is kind of and again, also to be pedantic, I'm, I'm going to be very pedantic for a second here. Doesn't Protex say earlier, doesn't he say like he's gloating to Superman, I think in issue three, and he says 70 more of us, Superman, each with the power to level mountings. So would that not suggest that there are the Hyperclan plus 70 unnamed Martians? So maybe there would be 78 of them? I mean, sure, if you want to quill over <laughs> sure, details. I mean, sure, if you want to be an asshole about it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sorry, PJ. Um, what does that imply? Jean killed the ringleaders. Oh, oh yeah, no, that's a scene we don't get. Like, Jean just <laughs> w- lined them up in execution style. Just, you know, single bullet, finished them all off. Um, so I, I th- thank you for putting up with me, PJ, because I went off on a lot of kind of like... Uh, soapbox tangents in this episode um that 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 issue did have a a lot of moments that required some extra extra topics but what it what are your thoughts now as we come to the end of both this issue and our first our first arc the i am loving an excuse to read this again to be honest (laughs) i do feel like it's like um I do feel like I've had like a, a weekend wine tasting course or something. Like I feel like my palate has evolved, and now I'm, now I'm kind of like going back and going like, oh yes, like before I liked this series because it got me drunk, but now I'm liking it because I'm getting like <laughs> floral notes and and plum and walnut or something like that. And it's getting me drunk, and, and it's still getting <laughs> it's getting me wasted, which is amazing. Um, I yeah I. I can't really overstate how much of an impact this series as a whole kind of made on me kind of growing up and also how much I have subtly stolen from it over the years (laughs) and maybe less subtly because I'm talking about it now. But I think even the idea of the White Martians... Uh, ship being in the so-called still zone this kind of like yeah. infinite white void i mean anyone who's read like afterlife inc um would probably realize that an infinite white void features quite heavily in that series so i, th- oh, I never read it i wouldn't know no it's trash you, you're wasting <laughs> your time don't bother but I, I i do think like i my young my young self kind of filed that idea away and was like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna nick that later <laughs> I'm i'm taking that no, I'd just like to say here, I have read all of Afterlife Inc. and I love it. It's one of my favourite comics of all time. So there you go. Oh, oh, oh stop. Stop, PJ. I, okay. I'm, I'm a big fan of your career with Simply Red. <laughs> <laughs> it's my best work. Um, what do you think are... What, are... what are the big takeaways from this opening series, which was really introducing the world to a new, an old yet new JLA? 
I think it's a statement of intent, isn't it, from from Morrison, basically saying, you know, we're bringing back the classic characters and we're going to show you why the classic characters are better than any of these new characters who've been created in the 90s that are all chains and spikes and aren't going to last more than 10 years. How much of it do you think was a... I don't want to say like a... Not in a nasty way, but how much of it do you think was a like was a statement about that? Like, there's a lot of themes going on here about like as you as you point out in issue one that the fact that like the hyper clan look like edgy '90s heroes. Do you think like you know it was '97? It was coming towards the end of a decade. The '90s had not had the strongest reputation for quality superhero storytelling. Yeah. So is it like Morrison saying? No. <laughs> no, no but more. I think in a decade where, and I mean absolutely no disrespect to Spawn when I say this, but when Spawn is voted best title of the year, several years running, and I'm like, I've read Spawn, it was okay. Yeah. Those early issues aren't amazing. They're okay. That I think that says everything about the era that we're we're talking about really and i think there is an element of of morrison here saying well look we've got these big classic characters and people have tried to do darker weird takes on them but that's not what these characters are for there's a place for your darker characters um look at the punisher Mm. uh but that's not what everything should be and these characters are still relevant and you can still tell a good fun story with them well yeah it's interesting isn't it because superheroes never well apart from when they do they never die like you know they they keep coming back they go on forever you'd think like well how what stories are there left to tell and superheroes are really about reinvention like you know they are superman has been reimagined countless times same goes for any superhero that's the secret to longevity can they survive while remaining true to themselves with each reinvention and I think the worst reinventions are when people try to take a character and force them to meet to match the times. And I think that's totally the wrong way round. Like um, you look at some of the um, backlash to Man of Steel, you know, yeah. and what they tried to do with Superman there. And I, I think if anything, the problem there was they tried to. I, again, they tried to make Superman match the world as it is. When in reality, I think what we owe to Superman is that we should be trying to be more like him, not, yeah. the, not the other way around, perhaps. It's why I think certainly at the beginning, when Marvel um, rebooted or sort of relaunched some of their characters with the Ultimate versions of them, mm-hmm. Ultimate Spider-Man worked because... They updated the time Peter Parker became Spider-Man and what that would make him as a teenager living at that time. Yeah. But he was still the same character. Yeah, and I think it's kind of sad. Like, if if somebody was going, how am I going to reinvent... How am I going to restart Peter Parker now? And they go like, oh, well, the idea of Peter Parker being like a a science nerd, that kind of sucks. I don't want to do that. You know, or they'd look at, like, Superman and go... Well, the problem with Superman is he's so kind of like gee whiz and boring and clean cut. I don't really care about that either. That's where you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. Because if you can't find like the magic in that character, of course, like, you know, Peter Parker in the 60s never played basketball. 
you know, yeah. or, or never like uh, was on online or taking photos on his phone or something like that. But it, it, these are just like these are just for cherries on top. Like you can change that. Like at their core, they're both good people trying yeah. to do good. You know, that will fit into any time frame, surely. Exactly. That's you need to take the core element of who the character is and keep that the same. You can change the world around them. You can even tweak elements of it, like that Ultimate Spider-Man one. Peter was a terrible photographer. <laughs> yes, yes, because of course he would be. He's just a kid. Yeah, and they he worked for the Bugle, but just on their website, doing tech stuff for them. You're right, because of course no newspaper would hire like a 16 year old kid. Yeah. But that's not an essential part of who Peter Parker is, so you can change that. But you've still got to have him be a a good kid who makes a mistake, his uncle dies, and then he does something with his life because of it. Yeah. That's that's who he is. That's what he does. To take that away from him and try and do a dark, gritty Spider-Man where he doesn't do that, is that, that's not Spider-Man then. No. It's not just about the powers and the outfit. And And... and- you know, it's interesting. We've, you know, with um, with the JLA, like we've we've talked many points in the last few episodes about how gloriously '90s a lot of like the shots and panels and yeah. you know just kind of the artwork is, and and it really kind of captures what I loved about the '90s and how that was such a uh, artwork wise. Well, it was an interesting time for comics. <laughs> um, you know. Um, I think it's maybe safe to say it was a time where it was very much style over substance in terms of approach to things. And I think this particular series, like just when it launched and the approach which the creative team took, it was that perfect moment where it had substance, but it also had the style of the 90s. Yeah. I think the best the best elements of the nineties, like that slightly extreme quote unquote nature to everything, which I have an incredible fondness for. And it's interesting that of course over time it changes. You know, like as it moves out of the nineties, the, the artwork changes, it um you know, it becomes softer. It as as Howard Howard Porter's kind of style evolves over time. It's just uh, such an interesting little time capsule of this one very hopeful and very optimistic moment in comics yeah i completely agree and one thing you can say about 90s artwork yes it was style over substance but some of it was incredibly dynamic Mm. and powerful in terms of it just coming out of the page at you and that does require its own set of like i would say uh, he gets ragged on a lot um rob liefeld Mm -hmm. technically yeah that big chest captain america a lot of his art is technically you look at it and go that's not very good but damn is it dynamic you can't deny that something is happening on that page like exactly. it is yeah or, or um uh joe mad you know just i uh, love joe mad oh my god i like, love his work his, his 90s x-men his stuff. 90s x-men oh my god pj <laughs> what an embarrassment <laughs> of riches yeah like just oh my life like the way yeah the way he drew cyclops the way he drew anything flipping egg yeah his his Wolverine was so so feral. It felt oh, there was oh my god. Okay, there was an episode of there was an issue of his run on X Men where Spider Man popped up. Yes, I, I during zero tolerance. During zero tolerance. Yeah, and Joe Mad drawing Spider Man, and he looks like he looks like an alien being. It is incredible. Like that that time when Spider Man's eyes were super expressive and they would yes. like move. 
kind of like a cartoon characters. Oh my god! Like it, we, it made me. There are two people I'm sad have never done a Spider-Man series: a writer and an artist, and who both wrote Spider-Man appearing in or did Spider-Man appearing in an X-Men book that made me want them to do a book together on Spider-Man. Joe Mad is one of them, and the other one is when Joss Whedon had Spider-Man turn up at the end of Astonishing X-Men and just wrote him perfectly. Oh yeah, no, that was good. Oh my god! So can we have a Joss Whedon, Joe Mad Spider-Man series, please, Marvel? Please, 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 if you wouldn't mind. Um, Although this is a DC podcast, so they're probably oh, not Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, have um, have uh, Joss Whedon and Joe Mad draw uh, the Incredible Bug Boy, or whatever his, <laughs> name, whatever his name is in like Earth forty seven or something. The the not the not Marvel universe. Um, should we give um, people some homework for next episode? Should they try and track down uh, a Midsummer's Nightmare? They should. I mean, I've got a trade of it, so I don't know why no one else does. I don't have a trade of it. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to find it uh, online. I, I think I did buy it in America when I was out in America uh... in like '98, '99. I was in Chicago for two weeks, and I found a comic shop, and I bought Midsummer's Nightmare and a collection of um, Secret Origins books, which I'll talk more about at another time. Amazing. Yeah. No. I. I maybe this will inspire me to actually complete my. Uh complete my uh, collection because it's it's very 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 nearly complete with the exception of a couple of the oddities which we're gonna we're gonna dive into next um also we, we probably won't cover it but i do recommend anyone who's a fan of this run on jla and and further does pick up uh jla year one by mark wade and barry kitson because it is it's a brilliant book 12 issue run um featuring the original jla lineup as it existed in this continuity oh yeah I'm a little, I've got to say, I'm a little woolly around that area. Is that when it's like Black Canary, Aquaman, Jean Jean's? Yeah, Jean Aquaman, Flash and Green Lantern, but Hal Jordan and Barry Allen, um, and Black Canary. It's the original League at that point. I've got to ask, how does that work with Superman not being a founding member of the League? Well, Superman and Batman, basically they take that first, the, the first case the JLA have and the five aliens or seven aliens, whatever it is that land and Superman and Batman are involved, but they don't join the league. Right. Okay. They're there, but just, they've got other things going on. Yeah. And they both appear in year one at various points. Um, but the right. core team is those five. Okay. Interesting. I may need to track that down. I'd always wondered about that little, there was a little, that was a little black hole for me in terms of JLA knowledge. I may have to look that up. Um, but have we have we exhausted this avenue of pleasure, PJ? Um, I think without getting into starting to talk about what comes next, I think maybe we have. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should call it a day then. Um, I guess we should give a shout out to uh, Gav Mitchell for drawing our amazing uh, cover artwork. There is a link to uh, where you can find Gav's stuff in the description. Uh, and Elliot Red for our amazing theme tune, Justice, which is incredible. I got shivers listening to it. He's good. He's very good. Um, and also there's a link to his work in the description as well. Um, so PJ, assuming we've said everything, we've we've wrung every uh, drop of Martian protoplasm content out of this episode, uh, how should we sign off today? Um, stay sexy? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you guys want to talk JLA with me and John, hit us up. Oh yeah, no. Um, we'll we'll talk on Twitter about JLA all day. Oh for sure, yeah. And our contact details are in the description as well. And you know, our door, our metaphorical internet door, is always open. But don't abuse it, because then I'll close it on you. 
Yeah, God, I just... I don't know. I, I feel like... Oh, my cat is about to be sick. <laughs> Mine have already vomited this morning, so that's fine. <laughs>